the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Daniel Freeb. Hello, Richard. And Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. Hello, Daniel. Hello. And we're back for the second time this week. We'll be actually putting out three episodes this week, technically, won't we? Because our first episode of our Reve, our occasional, or not occasional, quite regular um, springtime spin-off show, reviewing the classics as they've happened on the whistle as it were, they will come out, it'll come out on Saturday evening after Milan Sanremo, the first episode of that, and it'll uh, have our instant analysis, discussion, uh, thoughts on Milan Sanremo, first monument of the year, and the bulk of this episode will be taken up looking ahead to that, um, and we in our last episode we spoke about Terreno Adriatico and Paris-Nice, and there were lots of lots of learnings from those races, I suppose, uh, ahead of Milan Sanremo, but perhaps the main one uh was Tadej Pogacar, who continued his very dominant start to the season. Um, and as you said in the last episode, Lionel, he could be going for three wins in Italy on consecutive Saturdays after Strada Bianca at Torino Adretico and in Milan Sanremo on Saturday. They'll be calling him Juventus soon. <laughs> the, the, the question is, what, what are we going to see from him? I mean, we often say Milan Sanremo is the easiest race to finish and the hardest race to win. Um, and sort of a statistic that that contradicts that in a way is the fact that Eddie Merckx, the greatest cyclist of all time, to whom Pogacar is increasingly being compared, of course, won Milan Sanremo seven times, which suggests that if you are, you know, it's not a race that you win by chance or by luck. It's a race that, and I think this is what intrigues us about this race, um, it's a puzzle to be kind of figured out and sorted out, isn't it? Pogacar hasn't ridden it before, but then I don't think Eddie Merckx had ridden it before he won it for the first time. It really announced Merckx, didn't it, as a major talent in in lots of ways, his first Milan-San Remo win. Is that right, Daniel? You're the expert on Eddie Merckx. Yes, it did. Although, you know, I've been thinking quite a lot about the weekend, um, about, well, the reaction to Pogacar's win at Tirreno and the reaction to his start to the season... And the parallels with Merckx and this period with Merckx, particularly I would say 1967, 1968, before he won his first Tour de France, when the the penny was sort of dropping both for the fans and the riders who would become his his rivals, and I suppose in in a lot of cases his whipping boys over the next well best part of a decade. And it, it seems to me that. A, a similar mood is starting to set in, um, both among the cycling watching public and other riders as well, just monitoring sort of social media at the weekend. And, you know, Pogacar winning again and winning in the style that he did, it provoked some groans um, among, I guess, a minority. And other people are very excited by it. And it sort of got me thinking about how, you know, we feel, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think it's, it's worth revisiting how we feel about that prospect of a of a, a dynasty, a domination starting to sort of reveal itself. I mean, I, my personal, well, my instinctive reaction at the weekend after I watched Pogacar win on the Monte Carpegna stage was, you know, it, it, it kind of gives the experience 
of watching a kind of stamp of prestige when you feel as though you're watching something kind of era defining uh, I mean when I think back to some of my most enjoyable times watching sport that that has really applied the first thing that came to my mind um, I don't know how much this this will mean to, to you Rich but um, we were watching Brian Lara the West Indian cricketer in the spring of 1994 he broke the world record for the um, the highest test match score and then a few weeks later playing for my team Warwickshire he, he broke the record for the highest first class score 501 not out and he was just I think it was a, he went on a run of sort of seven or eight centuries in a row and it just felt exhilarating in the same way that it feels exhilarating to me at least watching Pogacar now there was a flourish a sort of youthfulness and aesthetic to his performances that just drew you in and there was a sense that he wasn't just sort of emulating what had come before, but redrawing the landscape of a sport, redefining li- limits. And it, w- it was just exciting to speculate about how far it could go and where it was going to end. Um, as I say, that was sort of my instinctive reaction at the weekend. But then, you know, I think about it more deeply. And on the other hand, that's not always the case that you enjoy these periods. Um, sometimes the same sort of rules apply to a dominant figure as they do to anyone else that you either like or dislike. I mean, for me personally, there are really sort of subjective factors that, that draw me to someone like Pogacar. You know, the fact he's from a small, mountainous, obscure cycling backwater in the middle of Europe. The way his name rolls off the tongue or, you know, the, the way the letters kind of look on a page. How he looks on a bike. You know, I'm not sure I'd feel the same if Maori Van Sevenen was having the same results. Um, and as a journalist, I suppose you, you also factor in your personal interactions with the guy. I mean, in Pogacar's case, you know, he's polite, he's smiley, he's professional and so on and and so on. And then, you know, in cycling, you always have to add in the the, 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 the caveat or the the question about, you know, credibility and do we have concerns about this kind of domination so yeah they were some of the thoughts that were sort of percolating through my minuscule brain at the weekend just a small corrections corner richard pogacar has ridden milan san remo before but he rode the summer edition in 2020 and he did uh, well didn't August. he finished 12th he was 12th yeah uh he was sort of in there um but i mean that doesn't really count it wasn't la primavera was it it was um well it was a, a, late, a, summer. a late summer edition um but I think there's a difference here and a sort of contradiction uh, because the thought of Pogacar winning a third Tour de France in a row at a canter with, you know, barely a kind of a whimper from the opponent's it's slightly deflating. It's a deflating thought. I want to see a Do contest. You think that? Yeah, I want to see a contest. I don't, I don't like sport when I, I can admire the brilliance. Um, but I actually think sport is far better, far more engaging when it's dramatic and close, and there's um, you know there's a glimmer of fallibility as well as um, you know brilliance. Uh, I suppose that's why I find, say, Julian Alaphilippe's way of riding flawed, uh, as it sometimes is, inexplicable. Sometimes, yeah, I watch Alaphilippe and think, what is he doing here? What and why? Whereas Pogacar is, um, he's doing the obvious thing brilliantly most of the time and he's attacking when he's attacking far out it's because he he knows he can do it i guess and i'm sure they all think they can do it but so far we haven't really seen pogachar try to pull something off and then come up short or be thwarted by others having said that the thought of him competing in milan san remo or um, the cobbled classics 
um, and, and adding variety to his Palmares at such a young age, that does kind of um, get me interested. And I'd, I'd really like to see this clash of styles, um, this, as Richard calls it, a sort of problem solving, which Milan San Remo really is. You know, it's uh, the contest between the sort of sprinters, the rulers and the, the sort of stage racers. Um, it, you know, that's what keeps me interested, I suppose. I, I'm not really interested in a sort of, um, you know, an era-defining clean sweep of, of every... And there will come a point where I'll, I'll probably get sort of slightly bored of, of watching Pogacar do you, do you just agree, though, be- when, before him. What I, what I said about it kind of lending a prestige to the watching experience. I mean, I remember vividly, and, and again, there are lots of caveats and asterisks that need to apply here, but I remember the experience of covering the Tour de France in 2006 and just feeling as though it was B-list and, and feeling that it was less prestigious as a result because because Armstrong had gone. Yeah, but I don't think in particularly looking ahead to this weekend's race, I don't get a B-list feeling if Pogacar... No. You know, I, I, I get what you're saying, um, but um, I don't feel like the peloton is currently in a sort of B-list era, is it? There's, there's this extraordinary I think, no, range it, I, of riders. I was going to just... Yeah, yeah, I was true. going to talk about that point because I think you said in last week's episode, Daniel, wealth begets wealth. And we, we're, we're maybe coming out of a very interesting period in the sport where there hasn't been a, a dominant player, either a rider or a team. There have been several riders and teams vying for that position. And where, where, when you get into a situation where there is a dominant rider and a dominant team, they tend to become more dominant. And the others, the others kind of lose interest a little bit. You know, the the team that has a dominant rider attracts m- more good riders and more money, and the others fade away. And we, you know, we're in a period where Jumbo Visma, UAE, uh, Bora Hansgrohe, Quickstep, all making major investments. Um, would they all be willing to do so if? there was one rider, Pogacar, winning everything. I'm very drawn by first victories, but less so by repeat performances. And so, yeah, Pogacar at Milan-San Remo, Pogacar trying to win Tour of Flanders, that really does excite me. Um, But if he was to carry on doing it, it would excite me a lot lot less. I've never enjoyed dominant years, didn't enjoy the injuring years, didn't enjoy the Armstrong years, didn't enjoy the Froome years because... I just got bored of the predictability of it, um, and I, I hope that I hope that we're not, for the sake of the sport, about to enter that. I hope those other teams continue to invest and continue to be as motivated as they are now um, to 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 try and you know where, where there isn't a dominant player, there's this very exciting battle to become that. Yeah, I don't think we've reached the resignation stage yet, but I did sort of detect hints of a, the, a creeping resignation at the weekend. And it did, as I, as I said, I immediately looked back to what I'd written about Merckx um, because I remember, you know, wanting to really focus on this period when I was writing about Merckx and how this resignation started to sink in. And, you know, there were some there were some really vivid stories that I heard from people. Felice Gimondi, for example, took talked to me about this Volta Catalunya in 1968 where Merckx beat him in the time trial and Gimondi had felt prior to that that he was unbeatable in time trials and he was going to be unbeatable for a long time and and when Merckx beat him 
it was it was shattering experience so much so that that night and he, Gimondi, you know, who was an old man at this point, he remembered the beach in in Catalonia where he'd spent the sort of evening pacing up and down the beach trying to come to terms with this fact. And he he then talked about how over the next year or so it was a gradual realization that he wasn't going to have the career that he thought he was going to have and and he and others adapted accordingly and um yeah as i say I, because i mean pogachar's repertoire isn't isn't as as broad as Merckx's was yet um it it may become so and i i think that's the question we've got isn't it coming into the next few months um i don't think we doubt or anyone doubts that pogachar is going to win the tour de france again but we don't know how broad um, his sort of hegemony is going to be. Can we just look, go back to Milan Sanremo on Saturday? Because reading about Merckx's first win in in '66, um, he attacked on the Poggio and came to finish with quite a small group. Won the sprint. You know, a lot of people are talking about how does Pogacar win um, Milan Sanremo and various, you know, possibilities have been mentioned. That a long range attack on the Cipressa. We saw we've seen Nibali do that in the past, haven't we? Well try. Or we see, we saw him try year after year and it's never worked. Yeah. Or or it worked once. He won no, once. Well he won he? on the Poggio. Yeah, okay, sorry. But um or wait for the, the Poggio. That would be a headline writer's dream, wouldn't it? The Pog the Poggio. Um but we've we kind of forget the fact that Pogacar could also win from a from a small group. I mean he's he's got a hell of a sprint when he when he needs it. Um you know if he's lost if if the sprinters aren't there then a, a group of up to about 10 riders Pogacar would have a a very good chance of winning from that size of group as well I would have thought. Yeah, I think that's the really intriguing thing about this weekend's race, isn't it? It's the first monument of the season of course and Pogacar has made himself well, he's put himself on the five-star list of potential winners in a in a race that probably has more potential winners going into it than uh, any of the other big classics, doesn't it? Because of the the type of rider that could, in theory, win it. And I suppose it's it's about how he sets about uh, trying to win it that that's going to be the most interesting thing. I was standing in the the square in Siena a couple of weeks ago watching the finish of Strade Bianche and one of the uh, sports directors or, or team management figures was, was stood next to me saying that if he carries on like this, Pogacar is going to complete cycling. And that's a possibility, but he's not there yet. And the beauty of Milan San Remo is that the the parkour is ideally suited. It's more or less ideally suited, but there's some real difficulties about it, aren't there? The climbs aren't really long or steep enough to get away solo. Um, the descents are not, uh, well, certainly not like the Monte Carpagna, which was um, really technical and, and caused a few riders problems. You know, they're, they're demanding, but they're manageable. They're, they're tackled fast. And then the gaps between the climbs in the run-in are just long enough um, to bring everything back together. And it, it's a, a case of we, we often see when we review the race how obvious it was in hindsight that it was all going to come back together at the as they come off the podio and into that finish and then it's a, all about timing so the the interesting thing you know <laughs> this time next week or rather on saturday night in our debut episode of arrive if we're talking about how pogacar has basically just completed cycling by um you know unlocking the milan san remo um level uh, I was going to say cheat code there, but I, I was uh, that that might have some uh, different connotations. Um, if he goes from you know forty kilometers 
from the finish and holds everybody off, then yeah, we can we can sit back and and say that this is Merck's esque, can't we? But I think it's going to be more complicated than that because there are other teams and there are other tactics and there are other strategies that will be doing everything to try and nullify the threat of Pogacar. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thanks very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. To find out how you can benefit from continuous glucose monitoring, go to supersapiens.com. What do you think, Daniel? Will Pogacar win Milan-San Remo? Well, I think there are... There's a strong case for and against. I mean, we talked a few weeks ago, didn't we, with Rolf Aldog, um, the Boransgrohe DS and uh, previously a member of Milan San Remo winning teams with Eric Zabel about how this race has changed. And it's really, well, we mentioned it at the time, it's really quite striking that a race you feel should have become more and more of a sprinter's race over the years has become less and less of one. And, you know, we talked about the size of the groups that come in now and contest the victory. And if you look back, you know, the last few years, um, it's been really noticeable how it's been very small groups. And you can really draw a line in the sand, I think, from 2018 was when um, in the World Tour, one day races, you started having seven man instead of eight man teams. And in 2017, so the year before that change was made, there was a big, the, a three riders stayed away with Kwiatkowski, Alaphilippe and it was Sagan, wasn't it? But there was a big group behind you know, 40, 50 riders. Then the next year, um, the, Nibali won on his own. 2019, it was a 10-man group. 2020, it's two men. 2021, it was a one-man group. So th- there's, there's no group. doubt. Well, a one-man <laughs> group, yeah. And and Stoven won the sprint. Solo artist, against himself. It was amazing. He was, led himself out and won the sprint. Um, <laughs> so there's no doubt that a, a single rider or a rider can win in a small-man group. And we said that Pogacar can definitely... I mean, I think he could, in the right circumstances, he could beat Van Aert in a sprint. Um, it would be unlikely, but we've seen, you know, he came very close in the Olympics uh, to beating Van Aert in a sprint. So um, that can happen. Um, where I think he might struggle is that I've often said that in Milan San Remo, well, it's the one classic, the one monument where a split seconds hesitation generally decides the race and is fatal. If he attacks on the Poggio, which I think is the smart thing to do, the smart thing to try, basically try and mimic what Nibali did in um, 2018, no one will hesitate. No one will hesitate for even a fraction of a second. And I think that's what may scupper him in the end. I do also think, you know, for all we talk about how the race is beautifully balanced between Grand Tour type riders and sprinters type riders and and the attackers... um, you mentioned Nibali in 2018, but he's the only Grand Tour champion, uh, so a rider who's ever won one of the three Grand Tours, to have won Milan San Remo since Laurent Jalabert in 1995. Um, so that's against Pogacar, in a sense, I suppose, uh, because it does still look weighted more towards the likes of Wout van Aert, Julian Alaphilippe, uh, and as we saw, Jasper Stoven, somebody who gets into 
the the right place at the right time and, and chooses to take a risk that is able in Sturvin's case slightly under the radar you know you're talking about that hesitation or that moment if Jasper Sturvin moves as he did last year there's not a queue of riders literally jumping on that wheel instantly they're letting it go maybe wait for somebody else to close it down as you say if Pogacar moves everybody's going to move and if they don't then uh, they may well very easily come to regret it so that's the difficulty Pogacar's got is that he really um, he's going to be extremely visible and he people will be expecting him to do something back in his favor is he's got quite a deep and surprising team hasn't he I mean yes uh, Matteo Trentin, Alessandro Covey um, sorry, uh, Diego Ulissi as well I mean there's people that can do things a bit further out maybe or even Trentin maybe could wait for a sprint there's there's um, tactics to uh, play with there and so when you might think about other teams being stronger and having more support um, for their particular leaders actually when you look at UAE team Emirates they, they stack up very well against anybody else I'd say I mean, that's the thing. You could see, as you say, Daniel, if, if Pogacar moves on the Poggio, you know, they're, they're, they're all over him. Whereas if, if one of his teammates, Kovi or Ulisi, have a go there, um, they've perhaps got, got free reign. And then, of course, Trentin will attack on the other side of the Poggio, won't he, on the, on the, on the, on the run, run into the finish. So they've got a few really interesting cards to play and, and they could well benefit from the attention that will all be focused on Pogacar. And of course, saying that people aren't going to hesitate is one thing, but them being able to actually follow his wheel is another. Um, you know, we, we heard a few years ago when Nibali did win the, the sort of watts that he put out for 15 seconds, 700 and something watts for 15 seconds. I'm sure Pogacar is capable of that and more at the moment. I wonder if that's why Jumbo Visma have got um, Primoz Roglic lining up as well. Somebody that could react and uh, be a, a threat to Pogacar and leaving Wout Art to kind of just surf a bit for as long as possible. I mean, it's intriguing that, isn't it? Does is Roglic the the king card or the the the, the Jack card? I mean, it's. I mean, Milan San Remo has its critics, doesn't it? But when that bunch swings onto the Poggio, the, the, there can't be it's many the best more. Ten minutes of the season. What's that? Yeah. It's the best 10 minutes of the season. There can't it? be many more exciting 10 minutes in, in, in the whole season than that climb up the Poggio. It, it's just, it's a it's a beautiful finish to a, a race that just just builds and simmers nicely over the course of 18 hours or however long it, it takes to get from Milan down the coast to San Remo. Um, it's just exquisite, that, 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 that 10 minute block up the Poggio and then the descent you know, a technical, difficult descent. Absolutely nothing is um, guaranteed at the top of the Poggio, and then the 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 you know the run into the line, which is just long enough for a break to be caught and something else unexpected to happen at the finish. It's it's got all the ingredients. Yeah, the other thing that's going to fascinate me, chaps, is again to bear in mind what Rolf Aldog told us a few weeks ago, just reflecting on Caleb Ewan last year and how Ewan had almost not so much been too strong, but he'd shown his strength um, to to uh, a sort of excessive degree, and that the the way to win if you're a sprinter is to to hide and almost pretend to be hanging on. 
Um, and I, I don't think there'll be a lot of sprinters you know, at the front end of the peloton on the Poggio, but there, there will be one, and we're not sure on the, the final lineups yet. It seems like Patrick Lefebvre and the quick step team manager has reconciled himself to the fact that Milan Sanremo is not a sprinter's race anymore. That was, I was hearing that at Paris-Nice, um, so don't be surprised if neither Jakobsen nor Cavendish is picked, but um, there will be there will be one who's on a good day and who looks to be in contention, but that, of course, creates can create problems because... Then we get a situation like the one we had last year where no one is willing to chase um, someone who, who attacks um, Stoven last year. And, you know, we've, we've seen that scenario play out a few times before as well. The Cycling Podcast and Map. We are delighted to be collaborating with Map this year. Map make outstanding clothing. Feast your eyes at map.cc. That's M-A-A-P dot C-C. And the fruits of the Cycling Podcast collaboration with Map will be revealed very soon. But they also sponsor riders, including Finlay Newmark, who is just back from Rwanda. Rather than me introduce Finlay, he does a great job of that himself. So here he is with a little bit about his Rwanda trip. So I had like a general um, fascination with East Africa. I went to um, the migration gravel race last year uh, and was blown away by it, both because it's it was my first off-road or first gravel event, but then equally just because of uh, its location and its surrounding. So I was aware of kind of the events uh, in that area and have been getting more and more involved with some of the setup uh, of team, uh, team Imani over there. I wanted to do my first ultra race, so I signed up for the race around Miranda, uh, which was supposed to be a 1,000-kilometer ultra race around Miranda, but because of COVID restrictions and um, curfew, it was kind of delayed until March, um, and the kind of original dates were kept for a bikepacking trip if people wanted to take take part in that they could if they wanted to postpone their trip until March and do the ultra race they also could yeah we decided because we were uh, busy in March that we would do the bike packing trip and hopefully see a bit more of the country than we would if we were kind of bombing around uh, with our with our heads down in the in the night uh, trying to get a thousand kilometers completed as part of the race so yeah that's how it came about and uh, I'm very glad for it because it was just one of the most amazing trips the Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. A big thanks to Science in Sport for their continued support of the Cycling Podcast. And a reminder that if you want 25% off all your Science in Sport products, go to scienceinsport.com and at the checkout enter the discount code SISCP. 25. I can hear Lionel's cat making its semi-regular appearance in the podcast. So I'll ask you, Daniel. I mean, the intriguing thing for me is, uh, you know, you've got these two races, Treno Adriatico and Pines, which act as very unconventional uh, kind of warm-ups for Milan San Remo. You know, there's, there's nothing in those races to really suggest what will happen in Milan San Remo, but it's the last, these are the last big races that most of the contenders will have ridden. Um, and the fact that two of them happen at the same time means that the riders are kind of kept apart, or some of them are kept apart. And we've got in particular the the prospect of Pogacar versus Jumbo Visma, you know, a story that's going to probably repeat over the course of the year. And this is a very particular 
type of challenge. But if you're the DS at Jumbo Visma, well, what would your tactics be, um, Daniel? I mean, Van Aert has won Milan San Remo before, of course. How would you play it? You've got yeah, you Roglic and um, and and Van Aert, obviously. Christophe Laporte going well as well. Um, what do you reckon? What what would be the strategy? I'm probably forgetting something here, but I feel like it's a race where when teams have tried to be too clever, they uh, have generally not succeeded. And I think you do the simple thing and um, you look at those, you know, there's about a 200 meter stretch on the Poggio where attacks have always gone and the ones that have succeeded have generally gone on that spot um, about a kilometer from the top. And you focus pretty much everything on on getting to that point with your leader in as good a shape as possible. And, you know, Jumbo Visma have the luxury that Van Aert can win in, in multiple ways, or certainly two ways, can't he? He, can, he could definitely be in a winning move that goes from the Poggio, um, and he can win a bunch of sprint. But that's that's what I'd do, Rich. I mean, if I was UAE Team Emirates, I'd, I'd look to make the race hard. I don't think you can win it on the... Chipressa, but I'd definitely look to make it as hard as possible on the Chipressa. Not, not so much to drop sprinters. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think you, you need to really focus your strategy around that. But it's obviously going to benefit Pogacar um, if it's a if it's a hard race. The harder the race is before the Poggio, the more likely he is to to break the elastic with an attack on the Poggio. So, Lionel, question for you. Pogacar, Philippe, and Van Aert get to the top of the podium together and stay clear to the finish. Who wins? I think Van Aert in those circumstances, just about. Um, that would probably be the nightmare scenario for both Pogacar and Philippe, and yet they wouldn't turn it down, would they? That's the that's the absolute, you know, the, the yin and yang of it, the, the balance. Um uh, of, of the finish and just ha- how finely balanced it is. Um, no, it just occurs to me as you say, Lionel, that one of the beauties of Milan San Remo, the one of the reasons we enjoy it so much, is that it runs kind of contrary. It's a perfect anecdote to all these discussions we've had over the last 15 years about there being too much planning, too much preparation, too much scope for direct sportifs. Um, to intervene, you know, based on what they see on TV, uh, in the monitors, in the cars. Because as I said, you simply don't, if there's one race where you don't have time, it's Milan San Remo. It's already too late. You know, if you're reaching for your walkie-talkie and relaying it to a rider, um, the decisions have to be made in the blink of an eye. I also think, you know, I know he was a, a, a debutant, a very young rider last year, Tom Pidcock, but something Rod Ellingworth told me about the way Pidcock raced the finale last year. I mean, let's not forget Pidcock finished 15th. I mean, it was a heck of a result um, for a, a first-time rider in Milan San Remo. Um, but he just got slightly carried away at the wrong moment. And I think that sums up Milan San Remo. You can feel absolutely brilliant, strong enough to make a move one second and then literally a handful of seconds later realise that it's too much. It's tipped... Um, tip the rider into the red and everybody behind suddenly looks and feels an awful lot stronger um so it's just about judgment and i guess it must come down to almost guesswork um feeling good enough to make the move being able to make the move and hoping that the the legs will carry out the the instructions from the brain and and that's what makes it such a compelling watch doesn't it 
I mean, we all know that what's going to happen is it's going to go completely crazy on the Poggio. There's going to be this frenetic descent. Um, there's going to be a sort of concertinaing effect as uh, as the leaders hit the flat roads and suddenly all of the speed is taken out of, uh, uh, you know, they, they lose that momentum and, and, and suddenly they have to pedal again, if you like, uh, you know, feeling all of that resistance loading back into the legs. And that's the moment that Filippo Ganna is going to take a flyer and do a, a Cancellara or a Pozzato. I'll beat you to it, Daniel. And he's going to look around and Peter Sagan is going to be on his wheel. <laughs> and remember him. Remember Peter Sagan. He is going to finally win Milan-San Remo. Um, what about the sprinters then? You mentioned that there will perhaps be a, a sprinter there, even if it isn't any longer a sprinter's race. Arnaud Demar is riding and obviously riding quite well. Um, former winner, of course. Jasper Philipson for Alpsen. Phoenix, Biniam Germay um, didn't finish Paris-Nice, but he is a guy who could well be a contender at Milan San Remo, if not this year, then one year. Another former winner, John Degenkolb, haven't seen anything from him to suggest that he could be up there. Um, we don't know the quick step lineup yet, of course, um, but Sam Bennett as well from Bora Hansgrohe is down to ride. Sonny Colbrelli, who was an early uh, casualty at Paris-Nice, wasn't he? He was riding at Paris-Nice, didn't finish, fell ill. So we don't know how he is, but he is down to start. And Caleb Ewan, a guy who we've been talking about as a possible uh, Milan San Remo contender since last year when at one point on the podium, he looked like he might be about to launch an attack. Um, and as you said, Daniel, maybe showed his cards a little bit too early. Um, but at Le Salmon, uh a week or so ago, a bit more than a week ago, I spoke to his sports director or team manager now, really, John Lelong. He's taken over at Lotus Sudal, a team that is under a lot of pressure because of something that you've been talking about, Lionel, the relegation from the World Tour that is facing teams potentially at the end of this year. Currently, Lotus Sudal are ranked 20th. Um, Cofidis 19th they are both world tour teams but as things stand they would lose their world tour licenses Alps and Fenix and uh, Arkea Samsic um, are well they're very highly placed in the in the, in the points table 9th for Alps and Fenix and 14th for Arkea Samsic so a lot of pressure on Lotus Sudal to uh, avert that and to not lose their world tour license obviously so I spoke to John Along about a few things about Caleb Ewan's challenge at Milan San Remo and how important it is for him to have a, a strong team supporting him and interestingly they've named their full team already it includes Philippe Gilbert of course who's still you know trying to get Milan San Remo in his last year to complete the set of monuments um, so we spoke a bit about relegation as well also there's a bit in here about Victor Campenarts who has re-fashioned um, himself as a classics rider isn't riding Milan San Remo but um, could well challenge, thinks John along in one of the semi-classics coming up. John, we've uh, well, saw so, so a very aggressive uh, performance from the team today, Victor in particular. Um, he had a lot of bad luck on Saturday, but the form he's in must give you a lot of encouragement. Yeah, the form is there, the style of racing is there, with bravery, offensive, going for the win, not going for the points. That's what's, what we want to do, and it's, it was the, the best way to do it, I think that, yeah. We knew that it would be difficult, but uh, if we don't try, we don't try. And having uh, in the group of uh, 22, four of our guys in the beginning, I think that we can be we can be really really happy. And also seeing Anoudeli as a neo pro winning the sprint of the peloton, led by uh, Phil Gilbert himself, not so bad. 
I mean, Victor's talked a lot about transforming himself into a classic rider. What is he actually capable of? What would be an amb- a good ambition for him? I think that for the moment, I think that all those semi-classics are are a realistic ambition. But we know also that he is not a sprinter like Colbrelli, like Trentin. So he has to uh, to find out. And he tried also in the last kilometer after the last cobblestones. But I believe that uh, I would say that in in this season semi-classics are realistic and then he has to pass on the longer distance and uh, and on those really big races. You mentioned points there, I mean how, how much does that factor into any, any tactics or strategies you have? Nothing, on my side nothing. Is there I any know, pressure no. at all? No, yeah, there is a pressure that uh, if we don't uh, make it uh, at the end of the season but this is not for me the essence of cycling. The essence of cycling is to try to win and not to try to make 6, 7 and, and 12. If it is to ride like this, yeah, I prefer to change uh, to change my job. And Florian as well. Um, obviously, we saw him at Paris-Roubaix up there, but he looked good as well today. Um, yeah. Is he a guy who can target Tour Flanders as well? Yeah, we'll see. Don't put the pressure on him. I think that he will also do a little bit of those semi-classics and, uh, and confirm in Roubaix also. And then we'll see, but uh, I don't want to put the pressure and, and I will not put him in, in all the races, but uh, but sure that in a short term it will be arriving. And finally, Caleb Ewan for Milan San Remo. I mean, he's been talked about quite a lot as a f- potential favourite. Does that help him or hinder him a little bit? Neither helping, neither hindering. We are making our race and uh, we don't care about what is uh, in the media or in the, the saying and whatever, we know that he's one of the favourites and uh, and he has shown that he has a, that he has a leg. I think that for those who were in Tour du, du Var and Des Alpes Maritimes two weeks ago on the Saturday, and those who saw him climbing uh, Sunday in Kern, yeah, it's clear that he's on a, on a good map. And team support will be very important for him. Do you have an idea in your head already of, of the team that will support him? Yeah, but we we will uh, we will make the, to the the final tuning. But we we know already a little bit. But we need to tune to tune and. A lot of things can happen in two weeks also. A lot of points up for grabs at Milan Remo. No, a lot of... Uh, a nice victory in a monument. This is more... In, uh, I prefer to be, uh, to be first in Milan Remo, not looking to the points. This, is, uh, this will come. Well, that was John Lelong, the general manager at Lotto Sudal, insisting that his team will not be chasing points, that they'll be riding these big races to win. And, you know, they've had quite a lot of success already this year, especially with Caleb Ewan. He won a stage at Terreno Adriatico, he won at the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et Duvar, and he won at the Saudi Tour, and he was second at Kurna, Brussels Kurna. So he started the season very well indeed. He didn't finish Terreno Adriatico, um, a precaution, we think, to make sure he was ready for Milan San Remo. Um, can he win it, Daniel? I think he's, he's strong enough. He showed that last year. I don't think the course really reserves any fears for him. Um, he knows it really well, of course. It's, I was just wondering there, or thinking there, whether there's any correlation, not something I've looked into, but between people who live on the Côte d'Azur, sort of Monaco area, and success in Milan San Remo. Because for a lot of these guys, it's a fairly regular training ride. Uh, it's certainly something they can access very easily to go down the coast to San Remo and, and, and practice on the Poggio, effectively. So that shouldn't be a problem. Um, but... You know, again, is the the right tactic for him that sort of sandbagging approach advocated by Rolf Aldag? Jack Haig was telling us at 
at Paris Nice that every time he speaks to Primoz Roglic in the peloton, Roglic is just complaining about, ah, oh, it hurts, huh? Uh, not so good today, huh? And, um, you know, if, if anyone sort of asks Caleb Ewan on Saturday afternoon how he's feeling, maybe he should employ a similar tactic. I I heard uh, Wout Van Aert say the same thing on our rival podcast, the Geraint Thomas uh, podcast. He was on that recently. And he, they both actually, him and Geraint Thomas, spoke about Roglic's, uh, and I didn't know this about him, I, I must admit, his regular complaints that he's not on a good day, that his legs are not good. I, it's hard to reconcile that with this kind of very uh, laid back and, and relaxed, whatever will be, will be type character that he, that he appears to be in, in life off the bike. On the bike, he's constantly complaining about his legs not being good, which I was interesting, I thought. Just on Caleb Ewan and indeed the other sprinters, because this uh, suggestion from Patrick Lefebvre that it won't be a sprinter's race and he might not even pick Fabio Jakobsen, who's absolutely bang in form, got more wins than anyone else this season, sprinting very well. Um, I do wonder whether that's uh, perhaps a slight pre-race distraction, deflection. We'll see when the team lineup is announced. But in terms of the course change, Daniel, the Turquino is back, which is uh, the, the biggish climb in the middle of the race, comes before halfway, doesn't it? Uh, replacing the replacement. Was it the Colle del Giovo? Is that the climb they went over last year? There were some tweaks and changes, partly as a response to um, the race being held in August, wasn't there? Um, uh, this, the, the COVID-affected season and the, the local authorities uh, wanted the course to be slightly different. I think that was the reason. Um, but the Tokino is back. And what does what does that do for the prospects of the sprinters lasting and surviving and still having their sprinting legs in as good a shape as possible coming into the finish? I mean, I don't think it should make too much difference um, when the Turquino hasn't been in the on the course there's been a, an equivalent um, the, the the climb that's been gone for a few years now is Limania which came after the Turquino uh, quite a steep little climb which some riders used to say conditioned the, the race quite heavily and was a, a particular sort of Achilles heel for them but I, I think it's essentially the same route as last year and we'll see the same sort of scenarios uh, the weather will be a, a bigger factor um any any intel on that from you chaps have you been looking um, i know we're a long way out we're only we're recording on tuesday at the moment i've got well saturday good weather typical milan san remo weather um in terms of temperature 16 degrees but a bit of wind um 19 kilometers an hour wind which is quite a stiff breeze not sure from which direction but that will be important too early to speculate about the weather i mean i'm not prepared to speculate about the racing this is as much speculation as i'll do all season it looks but like a tailwind there's so many variables with milan san remo that you you very unlikely to be right but equally can't be terribly wrong either because of, of, of all of these things that come to play, there will be certain things that happen. There'll be an early break. There'll be somebody that does something on the Cipressa that does, when you look back over the race, you realise that that had a significant effect. There'll be somebody out of position going into the Poggio. There'll be some moves on the Poggio. There'll be those little splits over the top. You kind of can see it. It's just who is where. That's the fascinating thing. I, I suppose it reminds me of that uh, Laurent Fignon quote about the Tour de France being... 
um, not a who done it, but a how done it. And I think that applies even more so to Milan San Remo. It's how do they win the race um, is is almost more interesting than who actually gets across the line first. Breakaway. Could a breakaway win it? Will you, Lionel, be honouring Milan San Remo um, as you often do with a, um, some kind of culinary celebration some um, trofie al pesto or something like that famous pasta dish from that coastline um the famous sort of knotted pasta with pesto of course is from liguria or focaccia maybe nice nice glass of pigato white wine oh yeah sounds very nice all 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 finished off with a nice cappuccino frothy cappuccino (laughs) well in san remo probably a, a, a 10 euro bottle of coke can I ask, I mean, while we're speaking, um, some names have, have appeared on the Ineos Grenadiers start list. Um, Viviani, Ghana, obviously, Kwiatkowski, a former winner, um, Pidcock, you know, rode really well last year, Puccio, and Ethan Hayter. Now, Ethan Hayter, um, a rider who can win most races, but rode a very erratic um, Confusing, very confusing, Rich. I mean, a couple of times I saw him at the back of the peloton right at the back of the pelican and assumed that he was having problems that he was ill or just wasn't in form and then half an hour later you found him you know finishing the top 10 in a sprint um which, curious yeah i think a, a puzzle a puzzle to be uh to be solved um maybe we seek out ethan hater well we soon. talked a lot last year didn't we about if you remember last year there was feverish speculation about van der Poel versus van art and others and you know, I think we certainly weren't alone in identifying positioning as a bit of a weakness of Van der Poel's before the race, and so it proved. I think on the on the podio in particular, he was you know forty positions back, and and that's what undid him in the end. And it's a you know if that is an issue for a rider, you know I'm not saying that necessarily is the case for Hater, although sometimes it's looked like that in the last few weeks. Then that that could be a problem. On the other hand. There's a cur- there's been a curious pattern in Milan San Remo of first timers. I don't think he's ridden it before, but a first timer doing pretty well. Um, it's almost as though, and I've mentioned this before, riders overcomplicated. This goes back to m- me saying that teams really are probably best served just to do the ob- obvious thing. Um, it's sometimes felt as though some riders have overcomplicated Milan San Remo as the years have gone by. Look at Mark Cavendish. That was his first Milan Sunderland, wasn't it? They it won. was. Oh, nine. It was. Um, right, chaps. Well, let's finish with our prediction. Um, Lionel, who's going to win and, and and what's your wild card? I was going to say, this is where Richard says, my dark horse is Wout van Aert. <laughs> <laughs> or failing oh, that, failing that, the words out or, or Julian Alaphilippe for a real outsider. Uh. <laughs> I, I think the... I think. Oh, who's going to win, Lionel? I... I will go with what I jokingly said. I was thought of stealing Daniel's um, thunder there because you've talked about Ghana and how he could win it. I think that's a very good shout. I, why not? I mean, everybody looking at um, at all the people who uh, can go in multiple places, the one thing in Ghana's uh, favour, I would say, is that there's a really obvious way for him to win it, and that is to go late, do a bit of a Jasper Sturven, Fabian Cancellara-type move, um, it's really his one card. In it, he's got the, the the teammates who may well try other things earlier. So I'll I'll stick with Filippo Ganna. 
Okay, my my wild card is a Jan Tratnik with a but an eighty kilometer <laughs> solo attack. Uh, I think that's uh, or or Matty Morich with a, a a daredevil descent off the Poggio. Um, they, these are two. These are my two. My, they're my two selections. I think I'll go. That's with those. a very good shout. I think yeah, Daniel. Daniel, I will go. Well, I have to say Filippo Ganna because I've been saying it for. Well, years now. Uh, I don't know how he's going to win. Maybe the way that you suggested, Lionel. Um, otherwise, I think Dark Horses, Rich, you mentioned Biniam Gamay for Intermarche. He was really good at Paris-Nice, really impressive. Um, it's a race that should suit him. Another Dark Horse, Søren Kral Anderson to attack on the descent of the Poggio and to mm. win alone. Of course, remember last year, he very yeah. nearly won. Um, and in fact, he did. Jasper Stoven probably owed his victory yeah. to Søren Kral Anderson because Sturven was on his own sort of dying a death in the in the closing meters and Søren Kral Anderson gave him a couple of crucial pulls didn't he and just kept him ahead of the onrushing peloton and Kral Anderson had a bit of a bit of a lost season last year but seemed to seems to have his mojo back a bit yeah he's certainly riding pretty aggressively at the moment I, I, f- I feel bad. I feel bad for stealing Daniel's um, long-held prediction. I'll, I'll be saying mm. Anthony Turgis next. Um, yeah, it's Florian the, the, Senechal at Paris Roubaix. That's yeah. hands off, Napalm. But I'm um, looking at this, the potential start list, and there's just so many names. All of a sudden, they all, all make sense, and you can see how they could win it, and you can see how they obviously won't. Um, Dark Horse. I mean, if. If quick steps, cycling Grand National, isn't it? It kind of is, isn't it? Yeah, Casper Askelin as a um, potential, not somebody who would perhaps be fancied, but if uh, things work out a certain way tactically, could well be, you know, little group at the end, possibly. So your your wild card dark <laughs> horse is the reigning Tour of Flanders <laughs> champion. Brilliant. Um, well, listen, we we will be back on. Saturday night with something far more uh, concrete. Um, well, it won't be. It'll be. It'll be setting concrete, won't it? It'll. See, you'll not be able to stand in it yet. You could leave a handprint. Um, it'll be very gradually setting concrete on Milan San Remo. Um, with our verdicts, analysis, opinions, and what happened. Um, here's what that show's going to sound like. You are listening to a by the Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Coming this Saturday evening on the Cycling Podcast, a new spin-off show, Arrivé, in which Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib and me, Richard Moore, discuss what happened and how in all the major classics, starting with the first monument of the season, La Primavera, Milan San Remo. If you want to know how the big classics of the spring are won and lost and who did what when, then listen to Arrivé by The Cycling Podcast, episode one this Saturday, coming to your favourite podcast app soon after the riders drop down the Poggio and sweep along the Via Roma at the conclusion to Milan San Remo. Well, that's exciting, and that Arrivé will be returning for the monument, certainly maybe one or two other races in the spring as well. Um, so do tune in for that if you want to know exactly what happened in Milan San Remo or roughly what happened in Milan San Remo then do tune in on the usual feed since we recorded this episode there's been some breaking news to update 
First of all, Quick Step Alpha Vinyl have announced that 2019 winner Julian Alaphilippe will miss Milan Sanremo because he's been suffering from bronchitis. However, their sprinter Fabio Jakobsen has been named in the team, and that's after Patrick Lefebvre, the team's boss, had earlier suggested the Dutchman would not start Saturday's race because he felt it might not fall the way of the sprinters. We'll have to see how it pans out, but Jakobsen will be on the start line outside the Vigorelli Velodrome in Milan on Saturday morning, as will former winner Vincenzo Nibali, who won in 2018. But there is another big name absentee, the Paris-Roubaix champion, Sonic Brelli, is also suffering from bronchitis. Milan San Remo, of course, is the longest of the five monuments. And today, Wednesday, we've watched the oldest classic on the calendar. First held in 1876, Milano-Torino. In recent years, this has been a race for the climbers because it's finished on the Superga climb above Turin. The exception was a couple of years ago when the season resumed after lockdown and Arno de Mar won uh, on a flat run-in. As Chiro Scognomilio explained in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, RCS has juggled its collection of races, moving Milano-Torino from the autumn to the spring and turning it into a warm-up race for Milan-San Remo to favour the sprinters. And favour the sprinters it did. There was a move towards the end by Alberto Betiol and Ben Healy of EF Education easy post and Healy was alone in front for around 10 kilometers before the bunch took over and then we saw another Michael Morkoff masterclass in the lead out he put Mark Cavendish into the perfect position to win ahead of Nasser Buani Alexander Kristoff and Max Cantor. Peter Sagan was fifth possibly a hint of some form ahead of Milan San Remo on Saturday Next week, the spotlight will focus firmly on Belgium and the build-up to the biggest of the Flanders Classics. The run-up to those races continued with Nocca de Cursa in East Flanders today. The women's race was won by Lorena Vibus of DSM. She made it three wins in quick succession despite an early crash in the race. Lotta Capecchi and Marta Bastianelli were second and third. And in the men's race, Tim Mollier of Alpacin Phoenix, who won a stage of Tirreno Adriatico last week, was really strong in the uphill sprint on the cobbles. That, despite some good work by Group Armour FDJ in the final 20 kilometres, there was a solo attack by Britain's Sam Watson, stepping up from Group Armour's Continental Development Team, and then a good lead out, but their sprinter, Bram Velton, was no match for Mollier. Second was Max Valscheid of Cofidis and third Arno de Lee of Lotto Sudal. And finally, a couple of surprise late entries for Thursday's Grand Prix Danan. Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegor are scheduled to start for Jumbo Visma and Adam Yates will line up for Ineos Grenadiers according to the provisional start list. That is because there are 12 sectors of cobbles totaling 19.4 kilometres in all in the 200km race and with cobbles featuring so heavily during Stage 5 of the Tour de France this is an opportunity for the riders to see what it's all about so Richard is heading across there we think to see how Roglic, Vingegaard and Adam Yates get on on the cobbles that's all for this week from us though Um, we'll be back next week thank you very much Lionel thank you Richard thank you Daniel thank you chaps